Thank you. Romans chapter 5 in your Bibles tonight. Romans chapter 5. I hope you will take the effort to open your Bible to this amazing chapter that we'll dive into here in a moment. Uh, in the back, there is a table with uh, some books from Revival Focus Ministries. And uh, I'll mention a book tonight called The Revived Life. This would be a thorough progression of truth on what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God and know it. This follows the progression that I outlined this morning in that uh, convention that J. Elder Cumming went to, uh, where you deal with the, uh, the provision. He starts with our need, and then go to provision, uh, the faith response, and uh, so on. But we're just walking through the truth. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God and know it? Obviously, there's got to be a heart that longs to be filled. That's their awareness of need. Uh, but then you move to the cleansing power of the blood, the enabling power of the Spirit, the authoritative power from the throne. Now, Lord willing, tomorrow night, we're going to take that truth and peel back a bunch of layers. Uh, not just Christ in you, but us in Christ, far above the enemy. Some of the Grand Canyon verses in Ephesians 1 and 2 we are going to look at tomorrow night. Uh, but there's a chapter on that in here, and then how we access that uh, for the uh, overcoming life, take the way of escape. We dealt with that the first meeting for years ago, and then the overflowing life, and then a final chapter that kind of puts some of those truths together. There's other books there uh, that uh, uh, we have at the table. Maybe I'll mention a few more as we go along tonight. Good to see you tonight on this Lord's Day especially, and uh, may the Lord make this time count and breathe on us in a very special way. Appreciate the songs tonight. Uh, some great phrases that we sang, and may the Lord make that real in our hearts, even in our time together tonight. In the Sunday school hour, we started with choosing life, a person. We saw in the morning service that that person moves in so that he imparts his life to us. That's grace. Uh, that's supernatural enablement as the Spirit imparts to us the very life of Jesus Christ. That is a marvelous truth. Well, you know, a lot of that we know, maybe, and yet sometimes we don't experience as much of that truth as we think we should, and rightly so. Why? What is hindering the experience, moving from the knowledge to the experience in life? And a lot of that boils down to a truth we're going to see tonight. So Romans chapter 5, we're going to get in the text here in just a moment. Romans is a gospel book. In fact, the entire book of Romans is referred to as the gospel in Romans 15, verse 16. You have the gospel to sinners in Romans 1 through 5. That's justification by grace through faith. Then you have the gospel to the saints in Romans 6 through 8. That is sanctification by grace through faith. Then you have an emphasis on God's system in Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's all by grace and it's all accessed by faith. It's not automatic. And no man can change that. And then it pivots in Romans 12, 1. Uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. And that's when you have the application of all that doctrine, uh, starting in Romans 12, 1 through the rest of the book. Now, our text tonight is the bridge between the gospel of sinners and the gospel of saints. 
So it's Romans 5. It's the end of that first section, uh, leading us right into Romans 6. It is an amazing portion of Scripture. It's the platform that launches us from justification into sanctification. And it gives a truth that's vital to our understanding or we miss out. So Romans 5, and I'll begin to read in verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned. Notice the word reign here. Rule, had dominion by one. Much more. I love the contrast here. They which receive abundance of grace ah, and of the gift of righteousness shall reign, reign, rule, have dominion, notice, in life. Friends, that's now. By one Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore is by the offense of one Judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made, literally constituted sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made or constituted righteous. That's amazing. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Did you catch the purpose of the law here? The purpose of the law is not to enable you to do right. That's the purpose of grace. The purpose of the law is to show you when you do wrong. Oh. Law and grace. See, the purpose of the law is to show us when we blow it. <laughs> the purpose of grace is to impart the life of Christ so that we experience His righteousness. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound that as sin hath reigned, ruled, had dominion unto death, even so might grace reign, rule, have dominion through righteousness unto, literally it's the word into, the access of the eternal life, which is Jesus Christ himself. Now, would you describe yourself as a struggling sinner or as the righteous reigning. <laughs> wow. That's our text tonight. That's our subject tonight. Struggling sinners versus righteous reigning. Will you join me in prayer? Will you ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes tonight to His truth in this text? Blessed Holy Spirit, we need you right now to enlighten the eyes of our understanding so that we see the grand realities of truth that connect to these words. And Lord, give us understanding as to where our present experience is, struggling or reigning. And Lord, show us truth that sets free. In truth personified, Jesus. And so I plead the blood of Jesus, Lord, to protect us from the attack of the evil one who certainly doesn't want us to get this tonight. Lord Jesus, we claim our position in you on the throne and in your name exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder and trust you that that not be allowed. Lord, breathe on us tonight. Thrill us with the truth. Show us why when there's sincerity, sometimes we're just still constantly making dirty messes and the truth that can make a radical difference. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I heard an older preacher say, if you want victory over sin, man, that caught my attention because <laughs> I needed it. He said, if you want victory over sin, memorize Romans chapter 6. I thought, oh, wow. 
I can do this. I was a good memorizer. So I memorized Romans chapter 6, and I could stand there and quote Romans chapter 6. Guess what happened? Nothing. <laughs> I didn't have any more victory over sin than I had before. Because if you don't understand what you memorized and depend on the truth of it, you just went through an intellectual exercise. Have you ever noticed the precision of the inspired words in Psalm 119, verse 11, thy word have I hid or treasured in my heart. You know how we most often interpret that verse? Thy word have I hid in my mind. And people say, you just memorize scripture and it'll give you victory over sin. That's not what it says. There's a difference. Thy word have I treasured hidden in my heart. Not just the mind, it's much more than the mind. That I might not sin against thee or against God. So what is the heart? We'll come back to that here in a moment. I want to ask you three questions. And the uh, first two questions, you, uh, you don't have to uh, raise your hand or say anything out loud, but just kind of flag your answer in your mind. The last question, I will ask you to raise your hand, and heads will not be bowed and eyes will not be closed. Okay, uh, so uh, first question tonight, uh, and again, this one, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but on an average day, just an average Joe Blow day, <laughs> how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? So we're looking for a ratio here. On an average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of of righteousness. This many sins compared to this many acts of righteousness. Got some idea in your mind? <laughs> I can see the minds are really going right now. Okay, let's go to the second question. This is very similar, but it has a different nuance. On a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your average day would you say is righteous? On a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your average day would you say is righteous? I'm looking for a percentage, this percent. Now, here's the third question, and this one, I would like you to raise your hand. If you have not sinned today, <laughs> raise your hand. <laughs> and if you didn't raise your hand, what sins came to mind? Were there any? Now, in audiences where people have tallied the information and statistics have been taken, in Christian churches like this, on the first question, uh, on an average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? The average audience, the ratio is three sins to one act of righteousness. There was one seminary class that only had two sins <laughs> to one act of righteousness. Uh, but the average audience was three sins to one act of righteousness. On the second question, on a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your day would you say is righteous? The average audience said somewhere between 30%, that's fairly low, up to 60%. And most of that is below 50%. Isn't that interesting? So the average audience viewed the percentage of their day uh, that was righteous on the lower end of the scale. On the final question, most audiences were just like you. Uh, when I ask, or when somebody asks this question, if you have not sinned today, raise your hand. Usually nobody raised their hand. Occasionally there's one. Uh, but when asked the follow-up question, you know, what sins came to mind, a lot of times people can't think of any. Now, sometimes they can. <laughs> 
but sometimes they really can't, especially if I ask this question in a Sunday morning service. <laughs> and we haven't had more hours in the day yet. Now, generally what people are thinking is, well, yeah, but I mean, I can't think of anything I did specifically, you know, I, yeah, but I'm sure I did something. What that reveals is that we often view ourselves as a dirty, rotten sinner. In fact, we almost pride ourselves in Baptist circles in saying that we are just sinners. You say, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, we do make messes. I understand that. But is that what you are? Mm. See, that last question, what percentage of your day is righteous? I didn't say what percentage of your day acted out righteousness. There's a difference. And the problem is, we often view ourselves as a dirt ball that occasionally does right when we somehow get it right and experience grace. <laughs> but so much of the time, we're just blowing it and we make dirty messes. And I understand sometimes we do make dirty messes. But we're talking about your view of what you are. You see, what is the heart? Coming back to that word. The heart is the reflection of your soul. You see, the Bible says in Proverbs 23, as a man thinks in his heart, that first word heart is actually the word soul. As a man thinks in his heart, his, his way of thinking, what he really believes, so is he. That's what he acts out. And then the next verse uses the word heart to describe that. See, the heart is the reflection of your soul. Your soul is your mind, your affections, and your will. On a given day, we have a ton of thoughts bombard our mind. I mean, how many thoughts went in out of our brain today? I mean, just a ton of them. But a lot of them get kicked out as fast as they come in. But there are certain things we latch on to, and over time we, we embed those things, and the things we latch on to, they affect us. Thus, we move from the mind to the affections. The affections produce emotions, but emotions are involuntary. But what you focus on in your mind, that affects you, that produces emotions, and that pushes or moves your will to the choices you make. The heart is the summation of all that. It is the reflection of your inclinations because of what you latch onto. In other words, according to that text in Proverbs 23, the issue is not what you say you believe, it's what you really believe. Your heart is not what you say you believe. Your heart is what you really believe. And see, if down deep you think you're a dirt ball, that's what you're going to act out. Because as a man really believes, as he thinks in his soul, that's the heart. It's the thinking in the soul. It's what you really believe. It's your grid, your process of thinking, your way of thinking, your paradigm that produces your mode of operation. So what you act, the mode of operation, comes out of what you believe, what you really believe, not what you say you believe. I am not interested tonight that much in what you say you believe. I'm very interested in what you really believe. Because what you really believe is what you and I act out. Oh, man. <laughs> this really stunned me in the summer of 2000. I had to ask myself, do I believe what I preach? Because what you really believe, that's what we play out. That's what we act out. That is... <laughs> what we believe we are. That's, that's how we act. And so much more could be said on that level. But see, the heart is the belief system. Now, 
In the average sermon, we start off with our big theme, our proposition, whatever word you want to use, and then we have our points as preachers to support it. Okay, tonight we're going to flip that around. We're going to start with the points and end with the big final, you know, with what normally we start with. Okay, so let's go to three parts of our discussion, and that'll bring us to the focal point of our theme or proposition tonight. Number one, first part of our discussion is what I'm going to call a description of a sin-conscious way of thinking, a sin-conscious heart. The description of a sin-conscious belief system. The description of that way of thinking that kind of views yourself as a dirt ball. All right, let's describe this way of thinking. It starts with being law-focused. Now, please don't misunderstand me tonight. According to Romans 7, the law is holy and just and good. But the law has no power to enable you. So if you're law focused, you're you're going down a path that's only going to show you when you blow it. (laughs) So if you're rules focused, if you're standards focused, if you're law focused, if you're list focused, there's different ways of saying this. If you're system focused, if you're box focused, then... That's going to lead to a very sin-conscious way of thinking or heart because the law does not empower you to do right. It only shows you when you do wrong. So it's just the constant sin-consciousness. I'm blowing it, I'm blowing it, I'm blowing it. Now, a lot of people would say, well, I wouldn't say that I'm law-focused. Okay, let me word it this way. If you're focused on what you got to do and what what you got to not do, you're (laughs) law-focused. You may call it something else, but if your focus is, man, I got to do this and I got to not do this. Now, don't get me wrong. There are things we should do and things we should not do. But if you're focused on a list of do's and don'ts, you're law focused. Now, again, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying tonight. There are things we should do and things we should don't do. (laughs) Uh, But (laughs) the point is, if you're focused on what I've got to do and what I got to not do, here's another way of saying that you're focused on not sinning. Well, that sounds good. Here's the problem. Do you know if you're focused on not sinning, you're focused on sin? And if you're focused on sin, what will it lead you to? Sin. Oh, wow. What a deception. How many of God's people who long to do right, who want to do right, who want to live righteously, they want to live victoriously, and maybe they've heard some great truth about Jesus and grace and the power of the Spirit, but their focus is outcome. Their focus is it's got to look like this. It's your version of what Christianity should play out as. Your box, your list, your... And a lot of that may be very good stuff. Some of it may be man's traditions, but a lot of it's right out of the Bible. The problem is a list has no power to enable you. That's why the focus can't be on the law. That's why the New Testament says when you're saved, you're not under the law. Because it cannot empower you. You're under grace because he can empower you. And it brings us right to this focus issue. Now, if we have this focus on outcome, it's got to look like this, it's got to play out like this and so forth. We're focused on not sinning, therefore we're focused on sin. What that does is leads to feelings of fear. How long will it be till I blow it again? Ever had that? Man, have I had that over the years? Because this law focus thing, man, this was me to a T, man. (laughs) Oh, big time. 
as I was describing this morning. And so you're, 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 you have this fear. How long will it be till I blow it again? And that leads to feelings of, oh, man, i got to try harder. See, there's that flash dependence. Which leads to feelings of unworthiness because it's not working out too well and we don't measure up. See, back to that focus on we, it's too high, it's too far. We saw that in the Sunday school hour. We don't measure up, which leads to feelings of insufficiency because apparently we don't have what it takes. Which leads to feelings of frustration because we cannot achieve our goal, our outcome. Which leads to feelings of guilt because we're failing. Which leads to feelings of condemnation because our conscience is beating us up. It's mistaught, but still is a conscience, so it beats us up. And the accuser of the brethren is glad to join right in and say, yep, you're a dud. <laughs> you're a failure. Man, are you a loser? And yet at the same time, we have feelings of judgmentalism on others. Because if you're focused on the law, you're also very aware when everybody else is blowing it too. <laughs> and so it produces a very judgmental spirit. Now from this belief system, from this heart, from this belief system about yourself, living the true Christian life would uh, kind of be unnatural because the true Christian life would be living opposite of what you believe you are. Now, before we move to the second part of our discussion, I want us to compare the sin-conscious heart with a God-conscious heart, the sin-conscious system of belief with a God-conscious system of belief. We saw a moment ago the sin-conscious heart is law-focused, but the problem with that is, we learned this this morning, the end of the morning service, that the letter of the law kills. So if you're law-focused, you're death-focused. Interesting. And that's why, uh, that's 1 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter of the law kills, it is the spirit who gives life. Okay, and the next verse says that that law is a ministry of condemnation. It's a ministry of death, is the actual word in the King James. Wow. Why? Because the law doesn't empower you to do right. It's not a ministry of life. It's a ministry of death. It shows you when you do wrong and condemns you for it. Now, it's holy and just and good. It's God's law. But... If you're looking to the law, then there's no power there. And so what happens is you get very discouraged because you're blowing it and it's condemning you. It is the letter of the law killing. Now, in the God-conscious heart, instead of being law-focused, death-focused, you're Jesus-focused, who is life himself-focused. You see, Jesus is life. He's the eternal life. He is the abundant life. And you're focused on him, you're focused on life. See, choose life, a person. Whereas if you're focused on the law, it's death. If you're focused on uh, the law, and we uh, saw a moment ago, you're focused on not sinning. But in the God-conscious heart, you're focused on the righteous one. That's when you access his righteousness, as we'll see. Uh, when you're in the sin-conscious heart, you're focused on a list. In the God-conscious heart, you're focused on a person. In the sin-conscious heart, you have that mode of fear. When will I go down again? In the God-conscious heart, there's the mode of faith. Because there's a confidence in God. In the sin-conscious system of belief, it's the try harder. In the God-conscious system of belief, there's rest. There's trust in God. What a radical difference from try to trust. In the sin-conscious heart, there's that sense of unworthiness because you don't measure up. I love this. In the God-conscious heart, there's a sense of worthiness in Christ because he measured up and continues to measure up for you. 
and the sin-conscious system of belief. There's that sense of un or insufficiency because we don't have what it takes. But in the God-conscious system of belief, there's a sense of God-sufficiency. Do you know He does have what it takes? <laughs> and the sin-conscious heart, there's that frustration. In the God-conscious heart, there's peace. Sin-conscious heart, there's guilt. God-conscious heart, there's joy because you're now free in Christ. In the sin-conscious heart, there's condemnation. In the God-conscious heart, there's no condemnation. Wow. In the sin-conscious system of belief, living the true Christian life would be unnatural. And in the God-conscious system of belief, living the true Christian life would be natural because you're accessing the Christian life himself. Now, which of these descriptions best describes your predominant way of thinking? Now, before you answer... Let's go to the second part of our discussion. Let's move from description to diagnosis. I mentioned we would do this tonight. Let's diagnose a sin-conscious heart, the dirtball heart. <laughs> Let's diagnose this sin-conscious system of belief about yourself. We live in the age of symptoms. <laughs> so let's give seven symptoms <laughs> to a sin-conscious system of belief or a sin-conscious heart. This would be assuming that you know the Lord in salvation. Number one, you consider yourself still a sinner, saved by grace. The key word here is still. You consider yourself still a sinner, saved by grace. Now, obviously, if you're saved, you were a sinner because you had to be a sinner in order to get saved. <laughs> and if you're saved, yes, there's no other way. It is by grace. The question is, are you still a sinner? And if we want to get technical, and there's a time to do this, the New Testament emphasis by far and away is that you were a sinner, but once you got saved, you are a saint who can still sin. But it's a difference of emphasis in who you are. You see, prior to salvation, you were a dirtball. <laughs> but after salvation, you're not. Did you know that in the relatively short piece of literature called the New Testament, God, in the inspired text, calls believers in Jesus, you're a believer, this is what he calls you, he calls you a saint 63 times. 63 times. Why are we calling a dirt ball what God calls holy? Maybe we should get right with God about that because perhaps it's an insult. Wow. You see, this all matters. It matters. You see, when you got saved, God did something so that now you have the ability from him, grace, not to sin. Now, you can ignore that, and yeah, you can sin. And we've all made enough messes to make us think we're still dirt balls, but we're not at our core. If you ever want that to change, you've got to understand who you are at your core. There's been a radical change here. You see, as children of God, God is not against us because of our sin. He's in us against our sin. It's not against us. We're his child. He's in us against our sin. And God, yes, he calls out our sin, but he calls us saints, not sinners, even when he calls out our sin. Because it matters. You've got to know who you are in Christ. And God makes it clear you're a saint, a holy one, is what that word means, who can still sin. So we're not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about a sinless provision. Secondly, 
Second symptom of a sin conscious system of belief. You assume you sin often, even without knowing it. And so on our third question, uh, how many of you today have not sinned? Um, if you didn't raise your hand, what sins came to mind? And again, often we're thinking, well, I can't think of anything specific for whatever reason, but I'm sure I did plenty of wrong. Okay, so that means you assume that you sin often, even without knowing it. Now, is that a biblical way of thinking? For a child of God to sin often, even without knowing it. Now, look, when you got saved, the Holy Spirit moved into you. Does he not warn you when sin is approaching? <laughs> yeah, which means you know it. <laughs> And even if you ignore him and you trample your conscience and do despot to the spirit of grace, as Hebrews talks about, it's not talking about unsaved people, it's talking about saved people who ignore the provision. Okay, even then, even when you cross the line and you sin intentionally, does he not convict you? I mean, it's just like the referees in the ball games. Somebody breaks the rule, goes out of bounds, he blows a whistle. Okay, when we do that, the Holy Spirit blows the whistle. There's conviction. Now, I realize you can so trample your conscience that you get desensitized. That's possible. But even in that condition, if there's a moment of stirring and you ask God to search your heart, he will show you exactly what's wrong and you'll know exactly what it is. Do you know when the Holy Spirit convicts you, it'll never be general. It'll always be specific. You'll know exactly what it is. General conviction is from the enemy to get you to follow the wrong voice. Holy Spirit conviction is always specific. But see, if we don't get this, and we just assume that we sin often even without knowing it, then we, then we think we're sinning all the time. And that's going to affect our relationship with God. Not from His perspective, but from ours. And this is what causes so many people to have a sense of shame. You know, I walk a lot of hallways in a lot of churches... From Christian schools and colleges, it's amazing to me the number of God's people who walk down the hallway with their head down. It's incredible, especially in institutions where they can do this. <laughs> uh, understandably, so it's an institution. But what happens is you've got all these people walking down the hallway, they don't even look up and say hello because they've all just got this sense of shame. Or many of them. And that's going to affect your faith, your prayer life will be hindered, and so on. Number three, third symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. You assume it's normal, key word, to sin regularly. You assume that it's normal to sin regularly. In fact, we have a little phrase when we blow it and we sin and we make a wrong choice and we yield to the flesh and we make a dirty mess, even though technically down deep we're not a dirt ball. <laughs> when we make that mess, we have this way of thinking that says, well, you know, I'm only human. Isn't that a big one? Now, if you are a child of God, are you only human? <laughs> we'll come back to that one. You see, where does it teach in the New Testament that it's normal to sin regularly? Do you know just a couple chapters from Romans 5? We have Romans 8 that says you are more than conquerors. Whoa, that's totally opposite of this way of thinking. You see, in the New Testament... The paradigm is there is the provision for victory. Thanks be to God who is giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But he is giving mega grace. See, that's the emphasis of the New Testament. Christ is living in us. The emphasis is the victorious life himself, Jesus. But the access is by faith. None of it's automatic. And since it's not automatic, the Bible does warn us to flee. Fornication. Flee also youthful lust. 
It admonishes us to walk in the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It says over in 1 John 2, 1, Little children, I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate, a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Praise the Lord for that. If we ignore all the provision, blow it, stumble, go down, we can walk on the light, we can confess our sins, and the blood of Jesus cleans us all up. We are his, and he is our lawyer to plead that we are in him. Much more could be said there. But did you notice the implication of 1 John 2, 1? I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, see, that's the exception, not the norm. And we often have it backwards in our way of thinking, in our heart, in what we really believe, and it affects how we act. So this is vital that we get this turned around and get straight in our thinking. Fourth symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief, this is a big one, you believe temptation itself is sin. That if somehow you're tempted, oh, how could that even be in my mind? And you believe you've already sinned. Now some in this audience, I would imagine, know enough to say intellectually, no, 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 temptation itself is not sin. Okay, but again, I'm not interested in what you say you believe. <laughs> I'm interested in what you really believe. Let me find out what you really believe about this. If when temptation hits you, some trigger, you see something, hear something, boom, you're facing temptation. If you immediately confess it, then you take, you, what you really believe is you think temptation itself is sin, even if you say it's not. Because if you immediately confess it, you're viewing it as sin. Now, friends, if temptation itself is sin, we're sinning all the time. Because there's a lot of triggers. <laughs> Things we see, pictures, billboards, stuff on the phone, you know, something comes up, whatever. You know, I mean, just, just stuff everywhere. And what you hear, uh, smell, you know, all the senses, we're bombarded. Much less the fiery darts, which we'll touch on Lord willing tomorrow night, and the spiritual warfare truth. But the fact is, if temptation itself is sin, we're sinning all the time because there's traps and snares and fiery darts and all the stuff barraging us. But temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted <laughs> in all points like as we yet without sin, which means temptation cannot be sin. That's why he said, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Which means that the temptation is not sin. It only becomes sin if you enter into it. Which means you don't have to enter into it. You can take the way of escape in Jesus. Somebody said to me one time, well, yeah, but what about that verse in Proverbs 24? The thought of foolishness is sin. Look up the word thought. It's the scheming to do evil. Yeah, that's sin. Why? Because you've already entered the temptation. But just that you tempted, that's not sin. You can take the way of escape. Number five. Fifth symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. You assume it's easier to sin than to do right. Key word here is easier. You assume it's easier to sin than to do right. Now, you act what you really believe. So if you assume it's easier to sin than to do right, what are you going to do? You're going to sin. Wow. Years ago, I was in a meeting in a certain state. <laughs> And the pastor had been there long enough to be loved. You're there long enough to be loved or hated. <laughs> and so he'd been there long enough to be loved. And uh, uh, he, uh, he had a sense of humor. And uh, 
One springtime, he noticed that April 1st, April Fool's Day, was going to land on a Sunday. So he thought he'd have some fun. <laughs> so at the end of the Sunday school hour, he soberly announces his resignation. <laughs> People began to cry. It was a big mess. He dismisses, you know, uh, the service in whatever minutes. And he goes and hides. And they're crying and gathering in groups. And how can he do this? And it's a big mess. Then he comes out for the morning service and says, April Fools. It did not go over. <laughs> and they got him back three months later in Christian love, of course. <laughs> well, when they were crying and weeping, how could he do this? It wasn't really true, but they believed it was. And so they were acting according to what they believed. We all do. Now, what does the scripture teach? Is it really easier to sin than to do right? The New Testament tells us, 1 John 5, 3, that God's commandments are not grievous, which is the word burdensome. Yeah, preacher, I know it says that, but man, I'm telling you. <laughs> there are times when those commandments really do seem like they're burdensome. Okay, that means you don't understand the economy of grace where the cash is faith. Faith is not a work. It's dependence upon the worker. When you depend on the worker, he graces you. Ah, that's why it's not burdensome. That's why Jesus could say, my yoke is easy. That's what he said. Why? Because when you yield to Jesus, he himself carries the load. That's why he says, my yoke is easy. In other words, it's a non-yoke for you. Because you're way down here and I'm carrying it up here. It's not even like it's half and half. Ah. Now, God says you're a saint, a holy one. Let me ask you a question. Is it hard for a dog to act like a dog? You don't have to look like that's a hard question. <laughs> No, you don't have to teach a dog how to act like a dog. They just know how. Is it hard for a pig to act like a pig? No. I mean, you can take a pig, clean him up, take him to the fair. If he sees a puddle, he's probably going to get in it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not hard for a pig to act like a pig. Okay, so if you and I are saints, <laughs> shouldn't it be easy? Whoa, man, pretty sure. <laughs> wow, my experience is screaming otherwise here, but I catch what you're saying. Okay. You see, if we ever want our experience to change, we have to embrace what God calls truth. Let's go to a sixth, sixth symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. This is another big one. This one really rocked my boat. Because all of these things, you know, I understood them so well. I lived in them for so many years, and it's easy to go back to them. Here's number six. You assume that your default mode is to sin unless you deliberately choose righteousness. So just like you have a computer and you set the default mode to this printer, that's what's going to happen unless you go in and deliberately change it. Okay, the thinking here is you assume your default mode is to sin, unless, of course, you deliberately choose righteousness because, you know, we're responsible. Well, we are responsible, but if it's all up to you, the burden is going to be great. 
Do you realize that there's something that happened the moment you got converted that is so radical and so powerful and so amazing in its implications that the reality is your default mode of the real you. Some of you remember that term from two years ago. Your default mode is Jesus, who is righteousness, unless you deliberately choose sin. Because according to Romans 6, verse 2, when you got saved, you got placed into Jesus, therefore you got placed in his death, therefore you died to sin. Your default mode is not to sin. You died to sin. You're raised with Christ the new man. God's DNA got put into you. And that's where the Holy Spirit moved in. And he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. That's your default mode. Now, you still have that guy hanging around called indwelling sin. In your soul and body levels. His default is to urge you to sins. But that's not you. The real you is God's nature implanted in you. We'll see this more in a moment, just a second here. And the default mode of the real you is to Jesus, unless you deliberately choose sin. Do you realize the power of this? When you walk in the Spirit, when you walk in the provision of the Spirit, the Spirit of grace, His leadership, His power, when you're taking that provision, as we saw this morning, then it's not I but Christ. Do you know in the moments when it's not I but Christ, everything you do is an act of righteousness? Now think about this. When you are walking in the Spirit, then it's not I but Christ. When it's not I but Christ, getting out of bed when you're supposed to is an act of righteousness. Brushing your teeth is an act of righteousness. Changing the baby's diapers, that's really an act of righteousness. <laughs> and men going to work an environment that may be less than wholesome, but this is where you are, and you're taking grace. When you're walking in the Spirit, it's not I but Christ. And when it's not I but Christ, everything you do in that workplace is an act of righteousness. It's not just when you're in a Bible study or out soul winning. Wow. One guy got a hold of us in Tennessee a few months ago. He was so excited. Wow. Wow. I mean, he got to thinking about this. And, and so his wife came home one day from the, uh, with the groceries. She said, honey, can you open the door? He said, yes, ma'am. He's thinking, act of righteousness. <laughs> She's kind of wondering what's going on. But, you know, he was getting it. So back on that question, how many sins compared to acts of righteousness or acts of righteousness compared to sins? It should have been way lopsided on the righteousness side. Because when you walk in the Spirit... Everything you do as a Christian, when you're not caving into the flesh, but when you're yielding to the Spirit, everything you do is an act of righteousness. Because it's not I but Christ. If it's not I but Christ, then yes, getting up, brushing your teeth, anything is an act of righteousness if it's Jesus. Are you with me? Wow. My father put it this way, the new nature is a new natural. See, there's your default mode. And it's natural for the new you, which is the real you, to walk with Jesus. Number seven, seventh symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief, you assume God loves you more when you perform well and less when you don't. And that's a performance-based grid of thinking, and if that's how you're thinking, you're a Catholic Baptist. <laughs> you're still self-dependent, and you're missing out on grace. Now, much more could be said, but if four or five of these describe you, then you just got diagnosed. You got the dirt ball mindset. 
It's the sin conscious system of belief. And all of these are lies. Well, that brings us to the third part of our discussion. Let's get to the deliverance. We've seen the description. We've looked at the diagnosis. Let's get to the deliverance for the sin conscious system of belief, the sin conscious heart. Now think, think. If you have a wrong way of thinking, then obviously you need to change your thinking. Now there's a Bible word that means change your thinking. What is it? It's the word repent. That's what it means. Change your thinking. Change your way of thinking. Change your heart. Ah, heart change. That's at the bottom of true repentance. But it must change on the basis of truth. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking, which will get you nowhere. So what's the truth? Let's get back to our text because it's powerful. First of all, there's positional truth. This is the truth of justification, whereby the moment you believe in Jesus, you are declared righteous. At the end of verse 18, it talks about justification. In chapter 5, verse 1, it tells us when, therefore being justified by faith. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus, as Savior, you were justified, and that means you were declared righteous. In other words, your sin was imputed to Jesus so that his righteousness, when you believe on him, is imputed to you. And when the righteousness of Jesus is credited to you, what percentage of righteousness does he have? 100%. See, that one question was a little bit of a trick question. Uh, what percentage of your day would you say is righteous? And most of us answer the question, uh, how much of it has lived out as righteous? That's not the question. The question is, is. And do you know as a child of God, from that day forward, the answer is 100%, even on your worst day. Let me tell you something, friend. When you walk into heaven, you will not walk in with your head down. Because you don't walk in on your own righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Now, the judgment seat's a different story, but that's not when you walk in. Friends, when you walk into heaven, you walk in with the 100% righteousness of Jesus Christ. Even when a child of God tragically gets to the fourth level of depression and takes his own life, he walks into heaven with his head up. Even when a child of God tragically gets hooked on things he shouldn't get hooked on and ODs and dies, he walks in with his head up. Because you and I walk in, not on our righteousness, but his. Isn't that wonderful? See, that's justification. You are declared righteous 100%. In other words, from a legal standpoint, you're declared righteous. Well, let's go further. Not only is there positional truth, there's provisional truth. Positional truth is justification. You're declared righteous. Provisional truth is regeneration whereby there is a part of you that is made righteous. Not just declared righteous, but is made. It's constituted righteous. We saw this in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made or constituted sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made or constituted righteous. This is dealing with regeneration. This is what we dealt with in the message on the real you from 2 Corinthians 5.17 uh, in the last time I was here. Friends, when you got saved, your human spirit was regenerated with divine life. In other words, in the human constitution, there's body, soul, and spirit. On the body level, yep, we could say we're dirt balls because Genesis says, dust thou art. <laughs> and unto dust shalt thou return. Okay, uh, uh, that, uh, the human body will be glorified when we get to heaven. That's all future. The soul level is where sanctification is supposed to take place. 
and it progresses when there's faith and it's hindered when there's unbelief. But your spirit is already made righteous. See, we're declared righteous even though the soul and body haven't caught up. But the human spirit is made righteous. That old man dies with Christ and was raised with Christ, the new man. And that new man is created after God in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4.24 tells us. That's the new creation of 2 Corinthians 5.17. That part of you is what is described in 1 John 3.9 as God's seed, God's sperma, God's DNA and planted into you. And that part of you is righteous and has been since the day you got saved. Even when we ignore it, it's righteous. See, there had to be a part of you made absolutely holy so the Holy Spirit could move in. The turf, the beachhead is your human spirit. It's that new man. The old man died with Christ. The old lady died with Christ. I shouldn't have said that. Ah, but, <laughs> ah, but the new man, <laughs> that new creation, this is God's nature implanted into you. That part is constituted righteous. So are you only human? No. Your human spirit is now, it, it, is, it consists of the divine nature. And the Holy Spirit has moved in to lead and empower to grace you from that beachhead. So you're not only human. Isn't this amazing? I mean, the Marvel movies can't even come close to this. The provision for every child of God, the divine DNA, literally in the word that's used in 1 John, the divine DNA. See, with genes, it's half mom and half dad, I'm told by the medical people. Totally out of my league. But DNA, it's 100% mom, 100% dad. Okay, you got God's DNA and you got 100% of God's DNA in you. You are a child of God. Wow. This is not the absence of our weakness, it's the presence of His strength. Because that's where the Holy Spirit moves in to impart the divine life, to grace us. And that brings us to number three. We've seen positional truth, justification, you're declared righteous, provisional truth, regeneration. There's a part of you that's made righteous. And now finally, there's practical truth. There's a faith access whereby we may live righteous. You see, the provision here, grace... Christ in us, us in Christ, as we're going to see tomorrow night, all of this amazing provision is so that by faith we access that provision and live righteous. It's never the license to go do what you want to. It's never the license to sin. That is a lie from the enemy. That is the misuse of grace. But it is an amazing provision. So let's get back to verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned, ruled, had dominion by one, much more, much more, they... <laughs> They, see you're included in this, they which receive, do you know that the word receive is often translated take? See, it's not saying be given. That's another text. It's saying take what's being given. We saw this morning, he is giving mega grace. So here it's they who keep receiving, those who keep taking mega grace. Do you see it? If you don't take it, you miss out. He's there. He is giving mega grace. Why? Because Christ, God himself, is living in you. And so those who keep receiving, those who keep taking what's being given, thanks be to God, who is giving us the victory, Jesus. So those who keep taking this abundance of supernatural enablement, grace, 
and therefore of the gift of righteousness. The only righteousness God accepts is his own. That's why for us, righteousness is always a gift. Imputed righteousness and justification, imparted righteousness and sanctification. And so those who keep taking this abundance of grace and this gift of righteousness, it says, shall reign, rule, have dominion, win, be victorious, overcome, conquer. When? Bless God when we get to heaven? Well, that's going to be true. But it says in life. It's right now. Right now. And so if we're not reigning, we're missing out on what God's will and provision is. You say, well, wow, how do we keep from missing out? Last phrase, by one, Jesus Christ. This is where we miss out. This is where we blow it. This is where we get off course. You see, if your focus is anything other than Jesus, you'll miss out on Jesus. Because whatever you focus on, you depend on. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, right focus, the author of faith, right dependence. So looking unto outcome, whether it's some heavy-duty list or some no list, which is still a list. Focus on rules or no rules, which is still focusing on rules. Both of those miss the real focus on Jesus. And if our focus is on our list, our box, our outcome of how Christianity should play out, then whatever you focus on, you depend on. And remember, the law has no power to help you do right. So if you're depending on the law, it's only going to show you when you do wrong. Oh, man. And that's when we default back to self-dependence, to try to do it. And that's why Paul says in Romans 7, verses 6 down to 14, law, 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 law. And then from 14 to the end, I, 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 the good that I would, I do not, the evil that I would not, that I do. I, I can't do it, oh wretched man that I am. Why? Because law kills and flesh fails. And the law focus as good as it may seem, there's no power. And you go back to self-dependence and you, you're frustrated. You can even learn the truth of grace like we talked about this morning. I learned the truth of grace in its basic core essence in 1993, but it was almost a decade later before I understood the focus truth. And you know what happens? I mean, you're talking about grace and you're talking about the power of the Spirit and all this kind of stuff, but you're focused on law, which means you don't even have the power you're talking about. That's the hybrid, right power, wrong goal. And so, friends, when you get the focus back on Jesus, that's when you access Jesus. That's when you actually have the power you see, when the goal is a person, see, he knows where you're at on your journey. See, the box forces everybody into one size fits all. You know, two-year-olds make two-year-old messes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but we don't get mad at a two-year-old for making a two-year-old mess. Now, if a 20-year-old's making the same kind of mess as a two-year-old, we got a problem. <laughs> but see, when it's, when, it's, when it's all focused on the list, it's one size fits all, and everybody is forced in perpetual immaturity. That's where many churches have gone. 
But when your focus is on Jesus, he leads you. He knows where you should be at two, at four, at six, and so on. And he, with precision, brings you along. And so, when the focus is on him, the righteous one in you reigns, and thus you reign. We reign with him. We're heirs of God and reign with him. Romans 8. Wow. Do you know, what, what, what should a, a guest preacher do if he, he's getting ready to go to a church and he finds out ahead of time, man, do they have problems? Now, I never asked the pastor. But what if somebody wrote me a letter ahead of time and said, hey, here's what's going on. <laughs> do you know this happened to an evangelist? And before he got there, he found out that there was a some major immorality going on, and it was known, and nobody was doing anything about it. He found out at the last Lord's Supper they used alcohol, and there was a drunken orgy, and that was a big mess. He found out that at the last business meeting they had a big fight, and now you had four different sectarian groups campaigning. The evangelist's name was Paul. The church was the First Baptist Church of Corinth, and I only slightly changed a few details. <laughs> you say, well, what did he do? Well, he wrote him a letter. We can read it. It's called 1 Corinthians. Tell man, I bet out of the box he let him have it. No, that's not what he did. Not out of the box. You know what he did out of the box? Chapter 1, verse 2. He called them saints. These people. <laughs> that's what he did. He said, them, oh, which are sanctified, called saints. It's in the text. Then you go to chapter 2, and then he started dealing with their sin. But he, deal, he dealt with it from the right basis, who they were. See, if you ever want your practice to match who you are, you got to know who you are. That's where it starts. So that brings us to the proposition. Ah, now you know we're almost done. <laughs> You've been a great audience on a Sunday night, especially with what's going on. Here's the final thought. Let the Holy Spirit convict you of righteousness. Now, let me explain that. Jesus said the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Which two of those three do we generally focus on? Sin and judgment. Okay. So let it get filled out. Let the Holy Spirit convict you of righteousness. Well, I had a college girl ask me, well, what do you mean? Convict me of righteousness. The word convict means convince. Let the Holy Spirit convince you that the moment you got saved, you got declared righteous. Let the Holy Spirit convince you that the moment you got saved, your spirit was made righteous. And let the Spirit convince you that the faith access can access the righteous one so that you live righteous. Let the Holy Spirit convict you, convince you of righteousness. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we thank you for...